Check this out, bro. What's that, bro, Heem? I switched to Geico and got more. More savings on car insurance? Yeah, professor. And more. Like renter's insurance. More ways to save. Nice, bro chip. That's not all, bro shake. Geico has motorcycle and RV insurance, too. Ooh. That's a lot more. Oh, yeah. I'm all about more Teddy Roosevelt. Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. More. You know, when I arrived here at New Mexico State as a green freshman, the athletic scholarship that I received for, for track and field included uh, the meal plan over at the university cafeteria. And so I asked one of the older, more mature uh, classmates of mine, t track teammates of mine, what to expect from the school cafeteria. And he told me, well, there's good news and there's bad news. I said, all right, what's the good news? Or what's the bad news? He says, well, the bad news is the food is terrible. And you will have the equivalent of stomach flu for about the first two weeks until your body gets used to it. Dang, well, what, what in the world could the good news be? He goes, the good news is it's all you can eat. <laughs> That's a true story, by the way. That's a true story. More is not always desirable. But when something is good, who would not want more? Speaking of something good, have you ever wondered if there is more to the Christian life than what you're experiencing? Uh, more intimacy with God, more and deeper fellowship with others, more power, more life. And if there is more, do you want it? Now, this message is going to be a little bit different from normal, as if there is a normal with me. But what we're going to do today is instead of have points, we're going to have three questions we're going to look at that I think will be challenging to you. So the first one is this. Is it possible that there is more to the Christian life than what many of us, than what most of us here are experiencing? Back in the early 1980s, I was a missionary with the Athletes in Action track team, and we were on our way to Utah from our headquarters in Southern California, and we stopped in Las Vegas because we heard about this incredible breakfast buffet in Las Vegas. And if I remember right, I think it was Circus Circus, the Circus Circus Hotel and Casino. And so uh, we hear about this incredible buffet, and as a herd of hungry jocks, we, we go and pay our money, and we rush, almost run to the buffet to check out this smorgasbord that we've been told so much about. And when we get there and we look at the buffet, it's all nasty stuff. Fruit. <laughs> Vegetables. There's lettuce. Who eats lettuce for breakfast, for crying out loud? Brussels sprouts, spinach, uh, artichoke hearts, stuff like that. Are you kidding me? I mean, we, we, could not, we could not contain our disappointment and our disgust. This is it? This is the place that we've heard so much about? This is horrible. This isn't a buffet. It's a pasture. <laughs> so we picked over what looked like it was edible, and we went back to our seats to enjoy grazing on our gourmet rabbit food. And after a while, we began to notice these other people sitting around us, and they were coming in with plates that were filled with omelets and pancakes and French toast and, and crepes and donuts and pastries and mounds of crispy hash browns, biscuits and gravy, I mean, steak and eggs, you name it. And so we go over to a couple of them, and we say, where'd you, where'd you find that? 
and they point to this area that we thought was just overflow seating. And when we walk back there, we see that there's like eight other buffets set up, each with a different type of breakfast food. There was like Southern food and Mexican food. There was uh, every cereal, breakfast cereal that you can imagine, you know, the health food, uh, Cap'n Crunch and my favorite, Frosted Lucky Charms, because they're magically delicious. And I never knew before that moment that food could be the catalyst for revival. Because, man, we were jumping up and down, shouting, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. It was like we stepped through the gates of heaven. We were praising God, man, as we filled our plates, and we, as many plates as we could hold with as much stuff as they'd hold. And we'd go back to our seats, and we ate it all, and then did it again, again, and again. I know what you're thinking. Gluttony is not a sin if you say, thank you, Jesus, while you're eating. <laughs> it's in the Bible somewhere. I don't know where, but it's got to be in there somewhere. I think it's in First Rationalizations, the book of First Rationalizations. Yeah, I believe the beginning of that story is what the Christian life is for many people. Now, we hear all kinds of these promises of abundant life, and yet from what we actually experience, we may not say it out loud, but many of us think, this is it. This is all there is. And if we're honest, we're a little bit disappointed. Is there more? You can't help but read the New Testament. And when you read especially the, the, the Gospels and the book of Acts, you can hardly come away without seeing the radical difference between what the Christian life was for them and what it is for us today. And in large part, I think the reason for that is that we have been taught to settle for something less than we see in the Bible. We, we've accepted that God doesn't speak to us. He doesn't work in our lives. He doesn't work through us. He doesn't work through our prayers like, like he did back then. Uh, the Christian life today seems like it's mostly about getting forgiven, getting spared from hell, getting to go to heaven, which are all fantastic but that's really only the breakfast buffet, or that's only the salad bar at the breakfast buffet. You know, there must be more. If there's not, we just need to quit, quit reading the New Testament because it's presenting a false picture of what we can expect life to be now. It's kind of like if you go into a restaurant and you read this menu and it has all these incredible delicious entrees and desserts, and then discovering that they don't serve any of that anymore. They haven't served that for years. Now all they serve is boiled liver and broccoli. Yeah, look. I'm kind of stuck on food illustrations today. Do you notice that? <laughs> not for boiled liver, I'm not hungry. We have settled for a version of Christianity that produces kind of just a little better version of who we were before we came to Christ or a little better version of what uh, non-Christian people are. At best, I can expect to be a little better husband and a little better dad and be a little more honest and a little more joyful, a little more unselfish, a little more generous, a little more compassionate, a little more moral, a little bit more victorious over temptation. And, and if those things are true in my life, that's pretty good. But the Christian life is meant to be 
more than just a little better than what life was like before we came to Christ. Man, life is meant to be radically different. Our lives are meant to be radically different from who we were before we came to Christ and radically different from those who don't know Christ. Just as you would expect from people who the scriptures say are made into brand new creations. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Read it out loud with me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past. Everything is made new. Circle the word creation, new creation. That actually means a, a new creature, a new species. We're supposed to be so radically different from who we were before and, and anyone else, anything else. It's almost like when we come to Christ, we're made brand new species, brand new creatures that didn't exist before. That's a radical difference. We're meant to be radically different, as you would expect, from people in whom the creator of the universe has come to take up residence. Look at 2 Corinthians 13.5. Read it out loud with me. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Repeat after me. Christ is in me. Christ is in me. The Spirit of God, the creator of the universe, lives in me. Wow. Oh, you didn't have to say wow. Stop there. <laughs> Think about that. Should that not produce a radical difference in our lives that the creator of the universe comes and sets up residence in our lives? Shouldn't Jesus be busted out all over the place? And how about when a bunch of us in whom the spirit of God dwells come together like this? and worship Him, and serve Him. Shouldn't there just be an amazing, supernatural quality when people come together in whom the Spirit of God dwells like this? Look at the first description of the early church in Acts 2. It says about the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Now, when was the last time you came to church and your heart was filled with awe? You just felt the presence of God. It just moved you. They were filled with awe. Many wonders, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had, as he had need. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you heard of people in the church doing that? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were saved. There was such a quality to the early church that without even trying, people were getting saved because they saw the power and saw what was going on in the early church. And they said, I want to be a part of that. I want what they have. Now, the early church was unique. It wasn't natural. It was supernatural. Uh, it, it had a quality that couldn't be duplicated by any other secular or religious institution. They experienced a supernatural fellowship. In fact, even the enemies of the church would talk about how they were willing to die for each other. They loved each other so much. They demonstrated a supernatural compassion. As you saw, they would sell their, their things so that they could uh, have something to give to others in need. 
Uh, they were filled with a supernatural joy in every circumstance, even as they were being persecuted, even as they were put to death. They were filled with joy. They offered supernatural prayers and supernatural praise. They preached a supernatural message, all of which produced supernatural results that made the name of Jesus famous and turned the world upside down. Probably a better way of putting that is it turned an upside, dirt, uh, upside down world right side up as Jesus intended it to be. And I can't help but think that as millennials and young people leave our churches in record numbers like they've never left the church before, how much of it is disillusionment? How much of it is they don't see the promised and expected difference between those who believe in Christ and those who don't? And they say, why bother? Now, the early church won people to Christ not with persuasive arguments, but by relying on the power of God. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with what? Power. And with who? The Holy Spirit and deep conviction. 1 Corinthians 2, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of what? The Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, human arguments, but on what? God's power. Somehow, we need to return to a faith like that. We need to return to a faith that doesn't rely upon human wisdom, flashy worship services, well-researched church growth principles, but one that relies on the power of God. Amen? Number two, is it possible that there's more to the Christian life than what you are experiencing? And this is where it becomes personal. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this. Read it out loud with me. Check up on yourselves. Do you feel Christ's presence and power more and more within you? Gosh, that's a good question, isn't it? Do you feel Christ's presence and power more and more within you? As you grow older in the faith, are you experiencing more of Christ's presence and power? Now, not to say that God's work in our lives is completely abs absent. Now, I know God has done some awesome things in our lives and in our church. Uh, I'm sure we all have examples of Christ's presence and power at work within us. Um, I've seen some pretty amazing answers to prayer. Uh, I've experienced peace and joy in circumstances where I shouldn't have experienced peace and joy. Uh, I've experienced victory over temptation that I have fought for years without success. And as grateful as I am for all those things, as grateful as I am for the things that God has done in my life, as I read and reread the New Testament and I take time to pray about it and think about it, I have this gnawing feeling in my heart that there's more. There's more than what I'm experiencing. Better. And I have prayed and I'm praying. I've prayed many times, God, if there's more to what you want for me, I want it. I want everything that you have for me. I don't want to miss anything. 
That's actually very similar to the prayer I prayed when I first gave my life to Christ. I was raised in the church. I believed in God. I believed that Jesus was his son. I believed that he died on the cross for my sins. I believed that he rose from the dead. But all that belief was up here. It wasn't in here. And it really made very little difference in how I lived. There came a point my senior year in high school that I was so disillusioned, disappointed, and disgusted with myself and my life. I got down on my knees beside my bed one evening, and I just pled to God. I said, I know there, if all this stuff is true that I've heard growing up in church, that you love me so much that you would send your only son to die on a cross, to hang on a cross and suffer for me, to take my sins, the penalty for my sins on yourself. If you love me that much, there has got to be more that you have for my life than what I'm experiencing. And whatever it is, I want it. I want everything you have for me. I want to live the rest of my life for you, fully for you. I don't want to miss anything. I had no clue what it was that I was doing. I didn't have a name for it. I didn't grow up in an evangelical church, so I had no clue what I just did. I know now that at that point where I got down on my knees and I called out to God, that was the point where I was saved. That was when I was born again. That's when I was forgiven. That's when I was adopted as God's son. That's when I was given eternal life. You know, and I was so zealous for Christ when I first gave my life to him. I was ready to attack hell with a water pistol. As a baby Christian, without going to seminary, with very little knowledge of theology in the Bible, I just started sharing Christ with people. And I, I had the opportunity to share Christ with every single member of our track team. And 14 of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. And then, because I didn't know any better, we read the Bible and it says, after you give your life to Christ, you're supposed to be baptized. So we started baptizing them. And I got to baptize most of those guys. I baptized two of them in the uh, pond at Young Park. They didn't survive that. But at least they're in heaven. I just remember back then, we took the Bible at face value. The things that it said God was willing to do for them, we felt like he was willing to do for us. And so we prayed big prayers. We prayed we expected big results. But somewhere along the line, most of us, our faith and our zeal cooled off because we were told God doesn't work that way anymore. And we settled for less. We went through a, a series, I don't know if you remember it, if you were with us about four years ago. It's called Dangerous Faith. Remember that? We read the book, Sun Stand Still. And in that book, we were challenged to expect and pray for and attempt great things for God, things that were beyond our ability, things that were beyond our resources, so that if God did not answer our prayers, we would fall flat on our faces. Remember that? And we prayed for this building, and we prayed that God would provide it for us, give it to us, uh, help us to to get into it in, in a way and use it in a way that could only be explained by him so that he would get all the credit. It could only be explained by the fact that he intervened on our behalf and he answered our prayers. And he, and he did that. He did that many times. 
question is, why are times like that the exception in our lives rather than the rule? Uh, why are we still not praying and attempting and expecting God to do greater things than we can do on our own? My question is, are, are you doing that in your own life? Expecting, attempting, praying regularly, daily for God to do what only he can do, things that you cannot do. Isn't that how we're supposed to live the Christian life? Now, there, there's a convicting question that someone once asked me that I try to ask myself often, and it's this. What is there in my life that can only be explained by the presence and the power of God flowing in and through me? What is there in my life that can only be explained by the presence and the power of God flowing in and through me? What is there in my life that cannot be explained, that cannot be duplicated with worldly principles of success and human wisdom and hard work? What is there that takes more than that? Now I want you to, I want to ask you the same question. What is there in your life? What can you point to in your life that can only be explained by the presence and the power of God flowing in and through you? What is there in your life that can not be duplicated with worldly principles of success, human wisdom, and hard work? Now, although there are some things in my life, I don't believe it's all that God desires for me or for the church, this church. Number three, if, if there's more to the Christian life, do you really want it? Not everybody does. Some people are content with just being comfortable. Listen to this poem. It was written by Wilbur Reese years ago. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a man of a different color or to pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Now, some people are like that, just content with just enough of God to make our lives better. I want God's protection. I want God to fix my problems. I want God to forgive me when I need forgiveness. I want God to bless my plans and make me successful. And that's all I need. Thank you. You know, that is so much less than what God desires for us to be, what God desires to do in our lives. Listen, to, to, to seek and to get more of God means we have to give God more of ourselves. You see, if we want all God has for us, that means that we need to give God all of us there is to have. It involves surrendering ourselves fully to Him. Now, let me tell you something that might surprise you. God is not interested in fixing your problems. 
God's not interested in fixing your problems. God is much more interested in fixing you. Why is that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you too much to just fix your problems. You see, if he fixes your problems, you're just going to have another problem tomorrow. If he fixes you, you're going to have a lot fewer problems. It makes sense, doesn't it? But for God to fix you, you can't just give him your problems. You have to give him yourself. You know, there's absolutely no reason to uh, fear giving yourself fully to God and pursue his plans. More than once I've talked to folks and I've talked to them about fully surrendering their lives to God, giving themselves fully to God, and and they kind of panic. So I can't do that. If I do that, God will will change my plans and he'll make me miserable. Maybe sell all my stuff. I'll be poor. What if he asked me to move to Denver and become a Broncos fan? Any Broncos fans here today? God bless you. I love you. I love you. Don't you wish you were up here and I was there so you could make fun of the Cowboys? Well, if you gave yourself fully to God, it may happen. That attitude is such a slam on God's character and his love for you. If uh, one of my kids had come up to me, especially when they were teenagers, and said, you know, Dad, I know you love me. I know you love me with all your heart, and I know you want my best, and I love you, Dad, and I trust you. And so, Dad, I'm giving my life to you. I'm letting you call the shots for now on, and I'll, I'll comply. Because I think that's how I'm going to experience the best life possible, by listening to you. One of my kids had come to me and, and said something like that. How do you think I would have reacted? Alrighty then. This is what I've been waiting for. I'm going to make you miserable. You're grounded for the rest of your life. No car, no phone, no friends, no fun, just chores. Right? No. Just the opposite, man. For one, I would be so blessed that my kid trusted me and loved me like that. And then I would do everything in my power to give my child the best, most fulfilling, most meaningful, most significant, most satisfying life possible. Wouldn't you do that if you were a parent and your child expressed that kind of trust in you? Why would we expect God to do any less if we trust him like that? Look at Matthew 7, the words of Jesus. He says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. Read verse 11 out loud with me. So if you, sinful people, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? And look look at what God promises. And I like the way the message paraphrases these these next two verses. Jeremiah 29, 11. Read it out loud with me. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future that you hope for. Underline that. Plans to give you the future that you hope for. You know, your future, the life that you most want, 
is going to be found at the center of God's will. And then John 10, 10, words of Jesus. Read it out loud with me. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. What a promise. That's what God wants for you. Last thing in the world we should be afraid of is experiencing God's whole will for our lives. We should, however, be afraid of missing it. Now, I won't promise you that a life lived for God will always be easy, but it will always, I will guarantee you, it will always be better than any of the alternatives that are out there. A life lived fully for Jesus Christ. So we're going to end here. However, I've got a homework assignment for you, all right? This next week... I want you to read the entire book of Acts in the New Testament. It's 28 chapters. You can get it done. They're short chapters. Um, And as you read, I want you to compare your present day experience with what you see in the book of Acts. And then pray and ask God to reveal to you if there is more than what you're experiencing. As you read that, is there more than what you're experiencing? And if you do see that, then pray and talk to God and say, I want it. I want the more. I want everything that you have for me, Lord. I don't want to miss a thing. If you're not there, if you're not willing to pray that prayer, then just be honest about that too. Talk to God about that. It's not like he doesn't know how you feel. And say, God, make me willing. And I'll tell you what you pray also. You pray to understand more fully God's incredible love for you, the depth of his love, and his goodness. And if you become convinced of those two things, how much God loves you and how good he is, then you won't have any problem whatsoever giving your life fully to him. Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a parable of a certain town where only ducks lived. Every Sunday, the ducks waddle out of their houses and waddle down Main Street to the duck church. And they waddle into the sanctuary and they squat in their proper pews. And the duck choir waddles in and takes its place and sings duck hymns. And then the duck minister comes forward and opens his duck Bible, because ducks, like all other creatures on earth, need their own special version of the Bible. It's the new duck version. And he reads to them. Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings, you can fly. With wings, you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fence can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings He has made you to fly. And all the ducks shouted, Amen! And after the duck minister dismissed them and prayed, they all waddled home. (laughs) And beginning with myself, my, my prayer for myself is that I will not settle for waddling 
when God has given me the ability to fly. And I pray the same for you. Let's pray. Would you take some time and begin to ask these questions? You just feel that knowing in your heart that there's more. And if there is, do you want it? And are you willing to call out to God and say, God, I don't want to miss anything. I want everything you have for me, even if life gets messy, if it becomes uncomfortable. I want everything that you have for me. Just talk to him. There might be somebody here that you might be like I was. That you may have even gone to church a good part of your life. And you may believe in Jesus up in your head, but you've never really given your life to him. You've never turned it over. You've never said, Jesus, come into my heart and life. I give you my life. Take control of my life. I want to live for you the rest of my life. And if you can't remember a time that you've done that, if you're not sure, I'm going to ask you to please do that right now, just where you sit. You're here, obviously, because you're interested in what God wants for you. Well, Let's settle the business now. Let's do it. Talk to him quietly, silently. Pray. You may pray something like this. Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you died on the cross and took the penalty for my sins on yourself. I believe that you rose from the dead and are alive today. Forgive me. Come into my heart and life. Make me the person you've created me to be. Help me to live the life that you've planned for me. The scriptures say that when we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has risen, that he's, God has risen him from the dead, we're, we are saved. And so I would like you to please, I'd like everybody to do this, but especially if you're, accepting Christ for the first time, I would like you to repeat after me out loud this prayer. Jesus, you are Lord. You are my Lord from this day forward. I believe that you are risen from the dead. Thank you for coming into my heart and life. Thank you for giving me eternal life and forgiving me. I'm yours. Amen.